This is an ABC podcast. Meet Jonathan. And no, he doesn't have emphysema. He's a Galapagos tortoise and he's very old. 190, they reckon. Thought to be the oldest living land animal in the world. Now, for any type of critter, getting to that sort of age is impressive. But just to be clear, Jonathan isn't the oldest living organism on Earth. Far from it. I think that there are trees that are seven to 8,000 years old. Maybe some are 10,000 years old. We just don't have the machines to measure trees of that size at this time. Even so, at seven to 10,000 years of age, that kind of leaves Jonathan the tortoise for dead, so to speak. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Trees, not tortoises, are our focus today, particularly the ancient ones. And here's an interesting fact to kick us off. Unlike animals, trees don't have a determined lifespan. Nate Stevenson from the US Geological Survey. Yeah, I like to make the distinction between senescence and ageing. And we humans senesce. You can't see me, but I have gray hair. I'm senescing. And that's an internal process. No matter how well I take care of myself, I'm programmed or you know, my metabolism physiologically starts winding down as I get older. As far as we can tell, most trees don't senesce, or if they do, it's so subtle that we don't detect it. But trees age. They don't die because they've gotten old and internal function has declined. They die from accidents. They die from being struck by lightning or burning up in a fire or falling over or being attacked by insects or being attacked by a fungus. And if they can avoid all of those things, theoretically, they can live forever. But living to become what we would classify as ancient is becoming increasingly difficult. Forest die-off is accelerating right across the world. Assistant Professor Anna Trugman. There have been a number of studies that have found increasing drought and heat-related mortality events around the globe over the past several decades. Here we're seeing a lot of die-off in some cases of like low-elevation conifer forests at dry range edges. And there's also been this pretty strong interaction with wildfire events that we've been seeing in the western United States because drought is affecting the live fuel moisture of the trees. And when the trees get dry enough, you really accelerate the wildfire risk. And so some of these trees that have been drought stressed were actually the ultimate cause of mortality is wildfire or in some cases interactions with pests or pathogens that take advantage of the fact that the trees are physiologically stressed and not as able to fight off these pests and pathogens. Trees and forests have dealt with drought for centuries. What makes a difference now? These hotter drought conditions can be a lot more stressful on trees for a number of different physiological reasons. So anthropogenic climate change is accelerating the hydrological cycle and also changing rainfall patterns in some cases, as well as what we call the vapor pressure deficit in the atmosphere. And each of these components can impact 
how stressed trees are. And so what I mean by acceleration of the hydrological cycle, it just means that we're evaporating water more rapidly and in a number of cases getting more intense rainstorms. You might see this manifest as like the exact same amount of precipitation, but it could be concentrated in shorter bursts and spread out over longer periods. And so in that case, plants are having to go for longer periods without getting water and some of that water can be lost to runoff. And so this reduced periodicity but increased intensity could really exacerbate water stress in plants. And then um, the other stressor that's actually like pretty globally consistent across all trees in wetter environments and drier environments is as you warm the atmosphere, you increase the amount of moisture the atmosphere can hold. And this increases the vapor pressure deficit stress or atmospheric dryness stress on these trees. And that can really, in a lot of cases, drive drought mortality. And that's kind of this globally consistent phenomena that doesn't select for drier or wetter locations. It's just anywhere with a warmer atmosphere is going to exacerbate this vapor pressure deficit. So while trees can be a bulwark against climate change, don't forget they can also become its victims. Dr Trugman and her colleagues have now taken their work on water stress and come up with a technique that can better indicate how likely a forest is to die during times of drought. We can actually predict how stressed a tree might be depending on the water availability and if that's going to exceed the mechanisms that the tree has to compensate for that water stress. If we know how much water is in the soil, how what the vapor pressure deficit is in the atmosphere and what the hydraulic traits are of a particular tree. And there's a lot of really nice resources in terms of long-term measurements of demographic rates at forest plot locations. And what I mean by demographic rates is there have been researchers that for years have inventory growth, mortality, and recruitment at these plots. And so we can use our first principles predictions of stress and compare them to the actual mortality that we've seen on the landscape. And that's how we know that the picture of like which tree is dying where is really pretty complex. And it's this interaction between the plant's physiology and the ecology on the landscape where you get this pest and pathogen host specificity. Because in some cases, we can see that the trees that shouldn't be the most stressed on the landscape tend to uh, have elevated mortality levels. And in a lot of cases, those are trees that have been infected by some sort of pest or pathogen like bark beetles. Another actually really complicated part of the story, as I'm sure people could imagine, is it's actually really difficult for scientists to tell exactly where the roots are and what they're doing. And so understanding how a tree's roots might be allowing for increased survival or more resilience during a drought event is still an area of active study that we're working on trying to fit in this overall picture. There's obvious value in being able to predict forest die-off, but how do you see this technique or this research being useful? How do you imagine it will be used? Well, there are a number of different ways that this research could be really used from a management perspective. This sort of information can be used to target areas of conservation of particularly resilient forest patches or areas where some sort of management intervention might potentially help increase the resilience of a forest. It's actually really important just from an overall climate change perspective as well. 
because forests are these really important carbon sinks. So currently forests are sucking up about 25% of our carbon emissions from the atmosphere through photosynthesis, where they assimilate the carbon through their leaves and these pores in their leaves called stomata. So they're providing us this really critical service in terms of mitigating anthropogenic climate change. But as people might guess for just from what we're talking about, like the productivity of forests is really sensitive to climate. And so these types of mortality events that we see have the potential to release a large amount of this carbon that's been pulled out of the atmosphere back into the atmosphere within a relatively short time period and cause a positive feedback on climate change. So really understanding where and when we expect to see these forests die or continue to grow and be resilient with climate change is going to actually fundamentally affect how much we have to regulate our emissions to keep to any sort of climate change goal. For Chuck Cannon, who directs the Center for Tree Science at the Morton Arboretum in the US state of Illinois, what's also important is tree genetics. Finding trees with resilient genes. But, and it's a big but. I mean, I've had people ask me, oh, can we breed the super tree? Can we create the super tree that's going to adapt to everything? But how do we pick a winner when we can't predict the future environment? We know it's going to be different. There'll probably be a different set of pests or invasive other species or whatever. Like, which tree will succeed in that unknown future? So the best way to me is to diversify, to create a lot of diversity, and then let that unknown future choose the successful. And I mean, that's natural selection, right? Which brings us back to ancient trees. When thinking about resilience, says Dr. Cannon, there should always be a place for the stayers of the plant world. Those trees whose lifespan stretches back not just decades, but centuries and even millennia. It's quite remarkable because they really are what you could call lottery winners. I mean, they are six, seven times older than the next oldest tree sometimes. And so you get these exceptionally old individuals and they're very rare. I mean, they're less than 1% of the population and they present a very valuable and essentially irreplaceable resource because, I mean, once you cut them down, you cannot recover them for five, 600, 1,000 years. You know, there's no shortcut to growing an ancient tree. It either is ancient or it you planted it 10 years ago and it's 10 years old. You know, once we lose these trees, they're gone. That's one thing. And so it's an additional kind of extinction that we hadn't really been thinking about. But also they did establish centuries ago. So they might've established during very different climate conditions than we are experiencing now. They might've established during a drought. So they, they grew up as a small tree in this harsh condition that we may see in the future. Maybe the combinations of traits that that ancient tree possesses could help our modern forests adapt. And so if we could propagate these ancient trees, we would gain that ancient genotype that is adapted to very different climates than we are in now. And also they are imprinted by local adaptation through epigenetics. So I really think kind of propagating these trees could be a very valuable thing to help the diversity in our modern forests and to help our modern forest adapt. But propagating ancient trees isn't a simple task. We're at the very top of the Sierra Nevada mountains on the southernmost part of the range. We're sitting at about 
7,000 feet in a 500-acre old-growth sequoia forest. It's, uh, I'd say, three steps closer to heaven than we were yesterday. The Archangel Ancient Tree Archive has been working to clone and replant ancient trees for several decades. Its co-founder is David Millark. They don't grow locally where they're easy to reach normally. They grow in you know rare areas that did not succumb to logging. And here in the United States, 98% of our old growth forests have been cut down. 97% of all old growth coast redwoods have been cut down. So you have to find remote valleys or mountain peaks or places that the loggers couldn't get at them and cut them down and sell them for money. So it's, it's a giant, giant scavenger hunt for the last 30 years, running down uh, rumors about a tree that's really, really large, really, really old. These are the largest, oldest living things on Earth. So first you find them, then we have skilled climbers. They're the tallest trees on Earth. Not very many climbers are able to, to go up between three and 400 feet into the air, go out to the end of the branches and gather the living tissue that we need. But over the years, the last 30 years, we have some crackerjack world-class climbers that are able to, to climb the world's largest and oldest trees, get the material, bring it down, and then we overnight it to our lab here in northern Michigan, just a little town in northern Michigan. But we have quite a facility here, a tissue culture facility and a propagation facility. So it gets here the next day. Our teams that have worked on these trees go to work right away. And, you know, we have three major methods. Some methods that we use are as easy as uh, rooted cuttings, like you would a flower. But it's the combination of hormones that go into the growth plugs and the number of seconds of mist that they receive per hour, the pH of the water that they're misted, all really increases our chances. So between that and micropropagation tissue culture, that's the major two ways that we use to go after these ancient trees. Now, the Archangel Ancient Tree Archive works with environmental organisations across the world, including in Australia and New Zealand. And increasingly, for people like David Millark, it feels like they're working against time. So far, we've had probably 95% success rate on all the different trees that we've tried to clone or the 40 or 50 different, you know, cultivars of that tree. It's like with our redwoods, we have 60 or 70 of the largest, oldest living redwoods, all different ones here that we propagate. But I would like to stress to all your listeners, do not plant monocultures. You don't ever want to plant just an old growth, redwood, sequoia forest, whatever tree you pick, and use clones. We stress only use 10% of the planting in clones and 90% in seedlings for genetic diversity. But let's just take, while we're on the subject, coast redwoods, we send our climbers up the largest and oldest trees in the world. We get tissue or material to tissue culture with, but we also gather the cones. We'll bring the cones back and we'll grow out the seedlings from those cones and we'll plant old growth forests with six or eight different cultivars of the largest, oldest trees, 90% seedlings from them and 10% clones. It's, it's pretty mind boggling to imagine what a forest of several hundred or several thousand old growth redwoods would look like, all 30 foot plus in diameter, 10 meters wide at the trunk. They start cross pollinating and, and reproducing that will be some sort of a forest that we'll leave behind us to work on this climate situation we find ourselves in. 
The value of old-growth forests has been talked about for some time, but it's only recently that scientists have been able to quantify the role that ancient trees play in helping to store carbon. And Nate Stevenson from the US Geological Survey says that's caused a rethink about the way trees grow. It had been assumed that as trees aged, their growth rate slowed. But we now know that's not the case. We did a study where we, for 403 tree species all over the world, every forested continent was represented. We compared the mass growth rate of small trees, intermediate-sized trees, large trees, and for the vast majority, something like 97% of the trees we examined, the biggest trees were the ones that were putting on the most growth every single year. There have been other studies that were much more detailed than ours, where tree climbers climbed individual coastal redwoods and giant sequoias and took on average 7,000 measurements per tree, including cores along the length of the tree's trunk where they measured ring widths, the widths of the annual rings. So they put together these very detailed analyses of how quickly the trees were growing, how much mass they were putting on each year. And even for giant sequoias, which is the world's most massive tree, the biggest sequoias are putting on more mass every year compared to the smaller sequoias. What does that mean in terms of their importance, their role with carbon dynamics? It means for carbon dynamics, the biggest trees are disproportionately important. If you start losing them, not only are you losing all that carbon they sequestered, but they're disproportionately important in the total carbon dynamics of the forest. Now, you also found, though, didn't you, that while the overall growth of these trees continued to increase, that there was still growth occurring, that wasn't necessarily the case at the leaf level. Just explain what seems like a disparity there. Yeah, at the level of an individual leaf in a big tree, it's not fixing a lot of carbon. It's fixing less carbon than an individual leaf on a small tree does. But the difference is a big tree just has so many more leaves than a small tree that more than compensates and a large tree is able to overall fix more carbon in a year. The fact that old trees continue to to grow at quite a, a significant rate Is that related to the fact that they don't have a a biological clock, if you like, as we humans do, that there isn't a predestined lifespan? Exactly. I, I think large trees do not senesce the way we humans do. They're able to keep growing faster and faster the bigger they get. What eventually will kill a big tree is an accident of some sort. You make the point, don't you, that while individual old trees keep growing, that doesn't necessarily mean that old forests are rapid net accumulators of carbon. Why is that? Yeah, an old forest isn't a rapid net accumulator of carbon because trees are dying all the time. You know, a big old tree, it's not senescing, but what's happening to it is it might have a rot in its base or something like that. It eventually falls over and dies. And there's more or less a balance in an old forest with the amount of carbon that's being stored, pulled out of the atmosphere each year, and the amount that's being released back by dead trees that are decomposing, or even live trees decomposing. The heart of a live tree can decompose and not harm the tree unless the tree finally falls and breaks. So in terms of of maximizing carbon accumulation within a forest, if that's what we're seeking to do with the forest, 
Do we need to have a, a mix of the very young and the very old? Is that the optimal equation? Yeah, I'm going to hesitate there because it's so complex that I try to not to make calls. <laughs> what we do know is that old forests hold more carbon than young forests. So if you want to keep carbon from being released into the atmosphere, it's a good idea to try to maintain an old forest. And to maintain an old forest, you always have to have young trees in that forest because the old trees eventually do fall over, die, and decompose. So it's it's like a mosaic of little patches where some of the patches have young trees, other patches have big old trees, some of the patches have intermediate trees. Maintain trees of all ages and be sure you're especially protecting the biggest, oldest ones because they're the ones that hold the most carbon. Nate Stevenson, an emeritus scientist with the US Geological Survey. And you're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. On today's program, ancient trees, forests and climate change. Now, a lot of attention is paid to how trees consume and store carbon, but a lot less is given to how dying trees affect Earth's carbon cycle. But new research from Professor David Lindemeyer at the Australian National University has begun filling in the gap. In a recent study with some colleagues from many, many parts of the world, we started to put together a bit of a profile of actually what's happening with the amount of carbon that's stored in the dead wood and how it breaks down and what are the beasties that are associated with the decomposition, and then started to think about what would happen if the climate begins to change even faster than it already is changing, and what would be the implications for decomposition. And that study was quite extensive, wasn't it? 55 forest sites across six continents. Yeah, it was a massive exercise. Lots of different sites, different types of timber, so that we could work out how different the decomposition was depending on whether insects had access to the wood or whether they didn't. So can you give us an estimate of how much carbon is actually released from decaying wood matter across the world each year? So all up, we estimate that around about 73 gigatons of carbon is currently stored in the dead wood pool worldwide. And that's that's about 15 to 25% of the sort of annual release of carbon from soils globally, which is about 50 to 75 tonnes. And what we've discovered is that about 11 gigatons of carbon is released from the decomposition each year. So, you know, these are non-trivial numbers. These are very, very large amounts of carbon stored in these different pools. What's really important is that about 85% of the global deadwood carbon stock actually remains on the forest floor and continues to store carbon each year. So it's a really important point that we're looking at a very, very large amount of carbon that's stored in dead trees and trees that are on the, the forest floor and are decaying. Also, that's what's really important is that during that decay process, a lot of that carbon actually makes its way into the soil and not necessarily into the atmosphere. So that's a really important part of the carbon cycle, as it were, about taking nutrients, including carbon from the soil, storing them in trees, and then even as the trees decompose, a lot of those nutrients would normally then go back into the soil and continue the true cycle through these, these forest ecosystems. And what are the main factors then that influence the rate of decomposition and, and thereby the rate of carbon going into the atmosphere? So one of the key things here is insects. So about a third of the decomposition 
that takes place of the dead wood is actually due to insect activity. And so that has a really big impact on what goes into the atmosphere, but also what goes into the soil. And one of the key things that's been happening in the past 10 to 20 years is that we've seen catastrophic declines of insect populations in many, many parts of the world. So a key thing here is that when a lot of the wood breaks down, much of that material actually makes its way back into the soil and then is then available for trees and other plants to take up and continue the cycle of growth and development. And that's a real concern that a key part of those life cycles, including the carbon cycle itself, will start to be disrupted without those very, very important animals such as insects in our ecosystems. So the process of decomposition, of course, is a natural process. How is it affected by human-induced climate change? There are several factors that are important here with the changing climate that's really upon us now. One is that in some systems, we're going to see more rainfall and higher temperatures. And in those places, our data suggests that the rate of decomposition will actually increase. In other places where it gets drier, even though it's getting warmer, rates of decomposition may well slow. And of course, this is also going to be tied up with what's happening to the insect populations that are very important in the decomposition process itself. So if we lose a lot of those key insect species, that also will disrupt some of these, these important cycles. Now, the other thing that's critical here is also what's happening to the trees themselves. And we know that a very large amount of carbon is actually stored in very big trees. And what we know is that as the climate changes and we, for example, have more severe droughts, the very largest trees are often those most susceptible to dying as a consequence of drought. Now, it becomes very difficult to pump water, limited amounts of water that might be remaining in the soil. It becomes difficult to pump that water from the soil to the canopy, particularly when we're thinking about some of Australia's extraordinary trees, such as the mountain ash, that are reaching and sometimes exceeding 100 metres in height. So those trees we know are disproportionately at risk of dying as a consequence of elevated drought risks that are associated with climate change. So there's, there's several components to this. That is how fast the decomposition rate occurs as a consequence of precipitation or rainfall and temperature. The populations of beasties that are around, such as insects and fungi, to assist with that decomposition process, but then also the death rates of trees that we see across ecosystems. So more recently, we've seen across tropical forests in many parts of the world, very, very elevated rates of tree mortality as likely as a consequence of reduced rainfall and increased drought stress. But we also see that across some of our temperate ecosystems. We saw that, for example, right across the wetter forests in Victoria and to a lesser extent, southern New South Wales during the millennium drought that we had in the late 2000s. How do you see this information, this, these findings being used? How will they be helpful for us in dealing with climate change? Well, I think it's really important that the very large trees that store a disproportionate amount of carbon become really important sentinels in highlighting what's happening with our environments under these kinds of pressures. It also tells us about why it's so important to, to maintain populations of animals that don't normally appear to be very charismatic, particularly some of the, the wood-boring insects and other species that contribute enormously to decomposition. So those intact ecosystems that have the full suite of different decomposing animals and fungi are critical for 
how these systems function. And a very, very large amount of carbon is actually tied up in our natural forests. And if we're going to have any hope of bringing down not only the emission side of tackling climate change, but actually storing large amounts of carbon in our natural systems, then intact forests are going to be critical to that. This kind of information really does help us understand the magnitude of some of these numbers in the carbon cycle. So we know, for example, that the amount of carbon that's released through decomposition, natural decomposition, is actually larger than the amount of carbon that's released through burning fossil fuels. And so this is really important to understand how these carbon cycles fit together so that we can understand how we can intervene to reduce the rate of climate change which is taking place right now. David Lindemeyer. We also heard today from Chuck Cannon, David Millark, Anna Trugman and Nate Stevenson. You've been listening to Future Tense. Karen Savanovitz was the producer. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.